<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is a HeadGum Podcast. where we give our greatest discoveries the podcast they deserve. I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. This show is brought to you by Ovakind. Find out more and sign up for our newsletter at ovakind.com. Hey. Hi. What's happening? <sighs> what is happening? Ugh. Mm-hmm. It's fall, yet it's, it's very fall, humid it's raining. and warm outside. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. Um, what else has been happening? I ran into you over the weekend. Literally um, ran. Well, well you I ran. Was, I ran into I was, you. I was sitting and Thomas was eating a donut. Yeah. So it was a real dichotomy. True. Yeah. Um, that was fun. It made me really happy because I really didn't want to be running. And I was thrilled to see you guys and thrilled to have an excuse to stop. Um, it's interesting. The Instagram comments that I got about the post that I posted mm-hmm. um, to Instagram stories about our encounter Asked about the donut that Thomas was eating. People they, weren't interested yeah, in me. I know. Or like yeah. us in general, yeah. or just like any of the people in the picture. They yeah. were really interested in the they donut. They wanted to know what it was. Yeah. He offered me a bite. I said no. It was a dough coconut donut. Mm. Um, yeah. Their coconut ones are especially delicious. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah. I turned it down just because I felt like it wouldn't make me feel good. Um, I, I think you're probably right. If you if you were but, mile two of a 13 mile run, yeah, yeah. But Jess Woods, the uh, Nike run coach who we've had on the um, the podcast, like swears by donuts. She eats what? them like before, after, and during runs. It's why ridiculous. she ran that she paced someone in the Chicago Marathon this weekend, and she Instagram. She was like, they say not to change anything on race day, which they they do. Yeah, They're like, yeah, don't try yeah. anything new. So I'm starting my day with this iced coffee and a giant donut. Um, I think what's she, her case for the donut? I don't think there's a case for so much as she loves donuts and she's okay. an ultra marathoner so why the f not yeah totally Basically, yeah. like i think for her she just runs so much it doesn't matter she needs the carbs and the sugar so i don't know if she just really loves them yeah i'm interested in this okay all right I, but i am really curious about it and you know that i tried to like bully joe holder who was on our podcast a couple weeks ago into telling you telling me that it was food. okay because i do like i actually do want to know like you burn off you burn it off so quickly does it really matter and this the stuff that you buy that's meant to be like energy runner snacks fuel for runners, is so gross it's yeah. just it's basically gummy bears with caffeine in them so i'm yeah. not actually convinced that yeah well, gummy bears a- with some protein powder and yeah. caffeine in them yeah <laughs> so i maybe we can get some sort of like a an expert 
I don't know. We'll find an expert. Will you Do they make an expert in these things? <laughs> I think Is you asked one two weeks ago. And I he know. Said no. He refused. It was really funny. Somebody else who listened to it was like, you tried to break the Ocho system. <laughs> you tried to game the Ocho system. I did. It you didn't did. Work. It did not work. <laughs> um, okay. So what? tell me. Okay. So it's technically fall. Yeah. I would like to take an opportunity to speak about what, to my knowledge, is the most discussed fall piece of apparel on the scene right now. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about it. It's at least the most discussed fall piece of apparel in, in my your world. world. Yeah, For totally. Sure. The it, permanent collection by of a kind mm-hmm. black A-line midi skirt. Is that the one you're referencing? How did, it must also be the most talked yeah, about totally. piece of apparel in your world <laughs> totally. right now if it you is. were able to guess so easily. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, I was telling you the other day that we have a friend who is spending a couple of months in London. Mm-hmm. And when I saw her, she they said- know, the, She's friend of the podcast, Lauren Sherman. They know her. But I didn't feel you like want I want to out her. Nope. <laughs> didn't want to. Was just going to, you know. Uh, OK. All right. Respect her privacy. So a friend of ours is spending a couple of months in London and she was telling me that the only two skirts that she's packing mm-hmm. are this skirt from LaRoe that she loves mm-hmm. and her new permanent collection by of a kind skirt. Man, good company. Good company. Yeah. Good company. Um, and we both are on board with this. We are both. It very just much really on- looks really good on everybody. I um, I have seen it on a lot of different people. It looks great on all of them. It has a very flattering shape to it. It has an elastic waistband. I posted a picture on Instagram of you wearing it on stage on a, during a talk we were giving and you were about the size of like my pinky nail and yet all these people wrote back and were like is that the skirt because she looks so good in it if you want to experience this skirt um <laughs> you are welcome to it with the code a few things you get 10 percent off um do yeah it. do it um <laughs> something know, else we should talk about yeah. on this episode the other funny thing that happened recently so you know we're always trying to bully people into advertising with us <laughs> because i like we make a decent amount of money selling things like that a-line midi skirt but I want more money. So we try to get people to advertise and every once in a while it works. And somebody reached out recently um, from a company called Sweet Pea interested in advertising with us. And um, we said yes. And well, first we found out what it was. First we were like, what is this? (laughs) Well, Claire said yes, just right out of the gate. And then, (laughs) well, I, well, but I always say yes because I know Max, who manages our ad sales, will bring down the hammer if he doesn't think it's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, Max protects the brand. But, but Max was like, I I think you're going to be into this. And so we got on the phone with um, the founder and we were like, all right, what's the deal with this thing? Honestly, just expecting like this is a new dating app and it'll be interesting to hear about it. And, Obviously, we are both in monogamous relationships, so we aren't on We're not apps, dating. But, We're not on the apps. But have enough single friends that this feels relevant to our interests. And are just like very interested in quizzing people about oh, dating totally. and dating apps. So oh my the gosh. opportunity to get on the phone with a person who knew anything about this. I love setting we'll people it. up. I feel like it's the only like thrill you get, you know? Yeah, well, I, you should start a dating app and then that's <laughs> your whole your whole thing. I should. Instead, <laughs> I'm going to accept advertising dollars. Um, but anyway, we got on the phone with this guy and we ended up being really obsessed with him. So one of the first things that hooked us about having this conversation with him is that he spoke to the fact that having conversations on the dating app is maybe one of the worst parts about the dating apps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had had a dinner with a friend a few weeks ago and she was telling me that she, she was like, I'm back on Tinder. Mm-hmm. I'm back on Hinge. Like <laughs> back on the wagon. Back on Bumble. Like it's happening. And I was like, that's good. I think you should be doing this. Cause I'm mm-hmm. like always pressuring her to just like, you have to just like put yourself out there and you have to just know that you're going to go on a million bad dates, but they're going to be some good ones. And she was like, you know what the thing is? I don't even like hate the bad dates that much. Like sure. That sucks. But 
I don't hate that. I hate the like inane conversation leading up to the maybe first date. Um, and I was like, totally, I hear, I like, I, I have no case to make for that. Yeah. Um, so we got on the phone with this Michael character and he was telling us about how on Sweet Pea, they have these icebreaker questions that you set as part of your profile yep. so that no one can text you just like H-E-Y-Y. As like a, <laughs> hey, that can't be the like intro. They have to like actually legit say something. My, like the thing that I thought of immediately was that um, episode of um, Master of None in the second yeah. season where yeah. it's revealed that like that Aziz Ansari's characters go to opening line is, hey, I'm on my way to Whole Foods. Can I pick you anything up? Yeah. Which is really funny. But then I remember seeing on someone I actually follow on Instagram, like real life, not TV, she was like, she posted a screenshot of someone actually saying that on Tinder, and her caption was like, "It was only a matter of time." Because it's, yeah, and she, it, yes, it's so and cheesy. Just, and to there's copy just like that. this like one-upsmanship, <laughs> yeah. and like this like you have to like have a tactic around right. what you're gonna say to these things. I don't know. This sounds awful, awful, awful. Um, so Sweet Pea is is out to end that pain. Yeah. Um, the other things they have going are that they're super inclusive. They have over twenty different gender options. Um, there's a hush feature so that you can. Pl- flag potentially offensive images or messages Mm -hmm. before you open them Mm -hmm. um they're trying to like make this a pleasant experience for people um which doesn't seem to be the overall theme of dating apps here's the other thing about it it's relatively new yeah um which i thought was really interesting to consider because there's it means that the community on there isn't huge yet which yes maybe might feel like it's limiting your options a little bit but it also means it's self-selecting well and you get to shape it like you get to shape what this community becomes if you're one of the first people there but i think the the like I don't know. The vibes we were getting from the founder felt very made me very hopeful that it could stay that way. He we started when we started talking to Michael more about, you know, why why a dating app like why this Mm -hmm. form. Um, He was talking about how the way that so many of our in-person interactions are now shaped by the way that we interact with Mm -hmm. humans on the Internet. And that's for us, like people in our 30s. Yeah. Imagine what it's like for people who are 16, 17 who might have their first dates with people who they meet online. They probably will. And yeah. No, it's like what you said. Like, we had AOL at a pretty early age, and that was such a uh, an influential aspect of our, I think, youth and, totally. and teen years. But, yeah, imagine for people who are growing up now. It's I mean, the way he put it was, we spend so much time online now that especially for people who are teens now – the way we interact online will dictate the way we interact in real life. We will learn how to socially interact online. And so he says he feels this huge responsibility as an app developer and particularly a dating app developer to be considerate of that when building this. Yeah. Thing. To be super thoughtful about it. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool and, and true. Um, the other thing that the thing that like really sealed the deal for us <laughs> um, is he was talking about you know, this responsibility that he feels and how as a result of that responsibility, Sweet Pea is donating 10% of its profits to charities like the National Domestic Violence Hotline, Love is Respect, all of these rain, rain, um, all of these organizations that help people and, you know, largely women escape abusive relationships and violent living conditions, um, which just I mean, I was like, why didn't you lead with that? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> I what what he said was, you know, technology companies can scale with very little overhead. So profits tend to be really big if a company is successful. And so he feels this responsibility to donate back, which I think is so right. And um, 
it's hard not to to feel really strongly about the cause that he's chosen to support, particularly as it relates to dating and thinking about how we teach people about what a responsible, healthy relationship looks like, especially as we teach teens that. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm like way in on sweet pea for a, yeah, for totally. a married person. Yeah. <laughs> the most you can be in as a married person without it being creepy. That's right. You know, That's right. <laughs> um, also if you download sweet pea, tell us, tell us how it goes for you. Yeah, no, totally. Search for sweet pea in the app store. Download it. You know how these things work. That's right. So we are here with Celeste Ng, who is a writer based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her debut novel that you probably have already heard of was Everything I Never Told You, won tons of awards, was a New York Times bestseller, which is an especially big deal for a debut. And then her second book, Little Fires Everywhere, was published um, in September. I am obsessed with it and I'm so excited to have Celeste on to talk about her work um, and everything. Hi, Celeste. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you just got off um, doing this big press tour for your book. How did it go? Um, you know what? I, I thought it was going to be really exhausting and it was, but it was also really fun, which is amazing. Um, I'm a real homebody. And so, uh, you know, my preferred mode of being is to like be inside my house, like in my, you know, in like, Me too. Pants. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, it was really nice. It was really nice to go out and like meet people who, um, you know, had read my books and liked my books and, um, it was just really, really rewarding. So, um, I actually had a great time. Well, what, we I, we obviously um, reviewed a lot of the press you had been doing just sort of to prep for this, and I thought it was so impressive how much you how relevant what you write about is to all of the things that we are talking about right now, anyway. Um, which I think really <laughs> makes for a successful press tour. Yeah, um, it's it certainly wasn't planned that way, but um, it it's been interesting to me to see how much. Um, my new novel, especially, but really both of my novels are sort of talking to a lot of the issues that we're dealing with right now as a country that we're talking about race and we're talking about class and we're talking about empathy and trying to understand each other. Um, I wrote both of these books well before the current political moment, but, um, you know, if they're helping to kind of feed that conversation and get people thinking about these things, then I'm really glad. Um, can you give us a sort of brief synopsis of, of your two books? Sure. Um, so my first novel, uh, Everything I Never Told You, takes place in 1977 in a small town in Ohio, a small fictional town. And it focuses on the Lee family who are, um, it's a biracial family. The mother is a white American woman and the father is a Chinese American man. And they have three mixed race children. And when the novel opens, uh, the middle child, Lydia, who is 16 and who is the favorite in the family, um, has been found drowned in the local lake. And the book sort of looks at all of the things that led up to her death as they try to figure out, was this a murder? Was this a suicide? Was it an accident? Um, and also it's sort of how the family is going to sort of move forward, all of the things that they haven't talked with each other about and the things that they're not able to share with their community. Uh, my second novel, uh, Little Fires Everywhere, takes place in my real-life hometown, which is Shaker Heights, Ohio. And it focuses on two families, the Richardsons, who have been established there, who've lived there for a long time and are well-meaning white progressives, and a mother-daughter pair who come in from out of town, um, who are very much their opposites. They're itinerant. Uh, the mother is an artist. 
and they don't really follow the rules. And the town and these two families are split apart by a custody battle over um, a Chinese-American baby. And the story looks at sort of how these two families get entangled and then cause a lot of trouble for each other. What was it like writing about your hometown? It was really fun and really scary. Um, it was, it was, it was really fun to kind of look back on my hometown in the era that I lived there. Uh, the book is set in 1997 and 1998, which is right when I was in high school. I would have, um, I would have been the same age as the oldest of the teenagers in the book, and it was, it was sort of fun to go back and send characters to the places that I went to as a teenager and remember what we were wearing and where we were going out to eat and what movies we saw and, you know, all of that. Um, and it was also really scary because I wanted to try and get it right. And because writing about your hometown is kind of like writing about a person that you know really well, like a relative. Um, you want people to see all the things that you love about them and that are great about them, but you also kind of feel like you should nod to all the things that they do that aren't as great. And it's, you know, it's, it's nerve wracking to try and strike that balance. Well, and you also grew up in a really specific hometown, right? I mean, I feel your your hometown was profiled in The New Yorker a few years ago for being such a specific town. Yeah, it's it's a very unusual place. And I didn't realize just how unusual it was really until I started writing this book. Yeah, Um, that it's it's been known basically since since the 50s um, for being sort of uh, working very consciously towards racial integration for being very progressive. Um, in 1963, I think it was um, cited as the wealthiest town in America per capita. And mm-hmm. so it was profiled in Cosmopolitan magazine, which was, this is right before the Helen Gurley Brown era. And yeah, so it yeah. was still in the kind of like general interest, you know, family magazine. And so they did a profile of the town because it was known for being the, the wealthiest town. And, and um, it, since then, it's really worked hard Um trying to be racially integrated, trying to be very progressive. Um, They put a lot into their public schools. And so it's kind of known for all of those things. And the question, of course, that everyone, including people who live there, keep asking is, well, how, you know, how successful is it? And I think this book is sort of part of that tradition. And it was sort of uh, set up by the Shakers? So it was... um, it was never actually, the Shakers never actually lived there. So the Shakers, um, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, were um, basically a utopian religious group, um, kind of a, akin to the Quakers. Uh, they kind of, they started right around the same time that the United States got founded. And um, most notably were um, utopian. Uh, they were communist. They held all their property in common and they were celibate. So they didn't believe in sex. And basically they had to uh, increase their numbers by converting, which is part of why there are not really a lot of shakers around anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a it's, recipe for disaster. I'll tell yeah, you no, what. I feel like most religions have gone the other way. And... <laughs> yeah, you know, like most, most, I feel like of the kind of like religious sects have gone uh, in the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, but uh, at it's the time, like what's they... worse, promoting celibacy or promoting abstinence-only education? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, in this case, they they were, you know, they they could only get people to join by getting them to convert and that's sort of a hard sell but you know if you uh, interestingly if you wanted to leave (laughs) and sex is definitely an easier sell yes (laughs) but if you wanted to leave the shakers you could do that um they would give you back whatever you had brought which i found really interesting that is Um, interesting 
partway doing the, the, towards the end of this book, I was sort of researching to see um, how many shakers there were still around in the late 90s. And I found an article by somebody who um, had gone to to interview the sort of last remaining community of shakers. And there were like 12 of them. And, and were they uh, in, one of where were they based? I, you know, I don't remember. Okay. I have to find this. But um, one of them was kind of a youngish man who had recently converted. And the reporter was a woman and they fell in love. And then the Shaker community said, you know what, this is so special that, you know, clearly this is God's will. And you need, you know, you should leave the Shakers and like go and like, you know, marry this woman. Wow. Um, this yes. is wild. <laughs> I so, it's so <laughs> not exactly what it's sort of exactly what you'd expect of a religious community and then also not. Yeah. So to go to go back to your question, um, <laughs> the Shakers originally owned the land that okay. Shaker Heights was built on. Um, there had been a big community there, um, basically in the east side of Cleveland. And by the time uh, the two founders of Shaker Heights came around, the Shakers had disbanded in that area um, and they were looking to sell the land and they sold it to these two brothers um, who then founded Shaker Heights on that land and named it in honor of those Shakers. Um, so there see. were never Shakers there, but that was the um, sort of founding the kind principles. Of, yeah, exactly. And the idea they wanted to promote this sort of like wholesomeness and purity and um, kind of utopian um, identity. Most of my familiarity with the Shakers is through their design, which seems to have lasted a lot longer than they did. Yes. Uh, because they have really beautiful <laughs> furniture design. Um, they do. <laughs> that I guess is part of their philosophy in life or, or, or sort of reflective of their philosophy. It is. They're, they're like, so people tend to know like the chairs mm -hmm. and um, boxes. They make this kind of beautiful oval boxes that stack. And it is, it is very reflective of their philosophy that they wanted, um, they would actually make those things to sell. That was part of how they supported their communities. But um, they did all these sort of innovations um, around basically mass production and of making, you know, kind of smart design. And that all they kind of felt was part of their, their mission, that they were supposed to make things that were, you know, easy to use and that were beautiful and that could be produced easily so that they could, you know, free up more time to worship God, basically. Hmm. That is really cool. I I could spend so much more time talking about shaker design, but that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> I know. So. <laughs> I, have, I have to say, I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk about this, though, because in researching this book, I learned way more about the shakers than any reasonable person needs to know. And I don't know what to do with that information. So I'm glad I got to put even a tiny bit of it. here. Have you checked out the Furnishing Utopia project? I have not. Um, this sounds like something I need to look up. It, look it up. It's um, it's from some it, it's from some uh, nonprofit that's maybe called the Shaker Design Project, and they basically commissioned a lot of really contemporary um, furniture and industrial designers to create design and create um, objects based on the Shaker Design philosophy. And you can buy oh, them cool. all now, and they're really beautiful. Um, I will look it and up. And that's the last I will hijack this conversation. <laughs> about. I think it was a good, but I, I think gonna, that was a good hijack. But I'm going to talk about Thomas Moser chairs in the next episode. Yeah. I promise. <laughs> All right. Um, what was it like researching a book like this? Um, it, I started off um, mostly going by memory. Um, so I, because I knew this era and this place really well, yeah. I wrote sort of based on what I remembered, you know, so I would send them to the places that I, I remembered. I would have them do things that I remembered. And then I kind of went back to like check my work, so to speak. 
And I would make sure that my memory was accurate because a lot of times, you know, what we remember is not actually how things were. And in the course of doing that, I also looked back into the history of the community and I learned a lot about, um, you know, the Shakers and their philosophy and the community and all of how the city was founded. And that actually added another layer of, um, of information to the book. There's there's only a little bit of it in there, but I wanted to give a sense that this community really had been based on those principles. It wasn't an accident that they're idealistic and progressive and kind of rule oriented. Um, when you went back to check your work from, you know, writing from your memory, what did you remember wrong? I can imagine like if I were writing about, you know, being 17, I can only imagine what I would get wrong. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> a lot of it, I was I was really proud that I got right. Um, there were a few cases where I thought I remembered that we had listened to this song, you know, at a dance or whatever, or I thought that had been, you know, part of my senior year in high school. And it turns out it was actually a year later. So, there, you know, okay. little things like that. Just um, like timeline stuff. Timeline yeah. stuff, yeah, that I was like, oh, actually, that song didn't come out until the fall, so we couldn't have listened to it in the spring, you know, mm -hmm. those things. Totally. And then small details like um, there are a lot of murals at the high school. Um, one of the things that the students do sometimes at the end of the year is um, we're all supposed to do a project, and some students would choose to paint a mural in the school as their project. And so the school kind of gets more and more decorated over time. And I I misremembered where a few of the murals were, you know, or I re didn't remember certain details. And so going back to look at them was actually really helpful. That's you amazing. sound like you have yeah. a really good memory. <laughs> I was going to say. I, there's no way I wouldn't just re not remember the placement of <laughs> yeah. the mural. That's really impressive. <laughs> really incredible. Well, I, I think part of that is this sort of, you know, writer writer personality that's not useful for anything else in your life except maybe for writing a novel. That um, Totally. A lot of details kind of stuck with me. And the murals, um, to be honest, when I first got to the high school were how I sort of found my way around. At the beginning, you know that, you know, your your science classroom is kind of over towards mm -hmm. the mural of the Hindenburg exploding. <laughs> or you know you know that like the the theater is kind of over in the if you want to go to the you know that kind of wing you go down the stairway that's right next to the um what's his name Jim Morrison from the doors yeah you know so it, it kind of helped me in that way and so yeah. they kind of got cemented in my brain that way that's so funny how have people from your hometown or even like high school classmates reacted to this um, so I haven't read in my hometown yet. Um, I was supposed to read there pretty early in the book tour. And then we rescheduled it because uh, I got invited to go on late night with Seth Meyers. And, and I, really, I really wanted to go on late night with Seth Meyers. <laughs> um, so we rescheduled it. And so now it's actually not, uh, it's going to be one of the last stops on my book tour. It's going to be uh, in November. But at every reading that I've been to, um, I think almost every single one, there's been somebody there who has a connection to Shaker Heights. Hmm. So some of them are people that know me, but a lot of them are just people who heard that the book is about Shaker Heights and came. And I've been really happy that all of them who've read the book so far have said this seems this seems really kind of dead on. Um, you know, they, they kind of acknowledge like with a little bit of self-embarrassment, like, yep, that's how we are. <laughs> um, which is sort of how I feel about it too. But I've been really happy to hear that um, because, you know, if you write about a place like New York or LA or London, lots of people are going to go there. Lots of people are going to have their own experiences. And so they can kind of measure what you say against their own experiences. And in Shaker Heights, I know that a lot of people are, this is going to be their only experience with that community. Totally. And so for people who, who do know that community to say, yeah, I feel like this is, this is pretty accurate, was was really affirming. Um, how was the process of writing the second book different 
from writing the first and, you know, even releasing it and promoting it? Um, it was I, I was hoping it would be easier and it has been in some ways, but in other ways it was just as hard. Yeah. Um, I'm getting, I'm getting the sense that, you know, with a project like writing a novel, it's just, it's, it's its own different beast every time. Um, when I wrote everything I never told you, I knew what the story was, but I didn't really know how to put the book together. I'd never written a project that long. And so in that sense, this book was a little bit easier. I, you know, coming to it a second time, I had, I had a better sense of just how to handle that much story in a novel. Um, but it took just as long to kind of think about it and figure out who the characters were and what, you know, how they were all going to interact with each other and how to tell the story. It took just about as long to figure that out as it did the first time. Um, I, I realized in looking back on my notes that I'd been writing this book since 2009. Um, so but it still took, you know, six, seven years. Um, in terms of releasing it and promoting it um it's been a little bit easier i think just because the second time you do anything is usually easier than the, the first time uh, mm -hmm. i knew what to expect and so um it was a little bit less scary this time to kind of go out into the world with this with this book you knew what you were getting into yeah i mean for better and for worse i knew you know, I knew what book tour was going to be like that, you know, you're going to go out and you're going to talk to people about your book and you're going to travel a lot. And so I got to dread it, but I also had been through it before. And so I knew what to expect. Um, I have a totally unrelated question. Um, I read that both of your parents were scientists. Yes. So were mine. <laughs> really? What kind of scientists? Um, my dad was a chemist and my mom is a plant molecular biologist. Oh, cool. So my mom is a chemist and my dad was a physicist. So yes, I'm another like child who came from a two scientist parent household. And isn't it so funny? We fell so far from the tree. It is and it isn't. I mean, I feel like their, um, you know, their kind of scientific background has influenced my way of thinking, even hmm. though I didn't go into the science. How so? Well, I feel like with, um, I feel like the way that I approach a story is a lot of what ifing, mm. and I sort of go, okay, so what if this happens? Um, you know, how will these characters react? Or what if, you know, this character does this? How is that going to change what happens? And so in a lot of ways, I feel like what I'm doing is I'm running an experiment with these characters on the page, right? And sometimes you take false turns and sometimes you have to go back. But a lot of it is still really sort of figuring out, like, you know, if you change these variables, like what happens? And that's essentially what a scientist does. So um, I'm so moved by that. Yeah, totally. because I'm like, it really just opened up my eye. I'm like, yeah, I can see how it, I can see a similar connection between my parents way of thinking and mine. I mean, for me, it's more about just like this, like, fanatic empiricism um, applied to everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's really interesting. I love that. Um, what is your writing process like? How, you know, are you writing every day? Or what time? All of those kinds of things. I love the things. like, yeah, process I love, stuff. I love that too. I just love hearing what other writers are doing. Yeah. Um, so I have a seven-year-old son at home right now. And um, that means that when he is at school, I basically am trying to be writing. So I am either upstairs in my office or I'm at the library doing work. Um, but basically he goes off to school and I start my work day because I have to go pick him up at three o'clock. Yep. Um, so I usually get some tea because I need caffeine and a snack because that's important for, for getting work done for me. And then I sit down and I go back to whatever it is that I was working on the day before and I kind of read through it. Um, that's usually how I get myself back into the day. And 
either I go, okay, that that's not so bad. I think I can see how to keep going. And then I can start writing or I go, this is terrible. And I need to fix this immediately. And I go back and I change what I was doing. But either way, that's usually a way of getting myself back into the project. Do you think that your son has an understanding of what you do? Um, kind of, he, he gets the basic idea of it. Um, he's really excited when he gets to see my book in the bookstore. Um, I think that the, the day-to-day process of it is a little mystifying for him because they, they make books in school as part of, you know, they're kind of writing <laughs> yeah. an art. And he's, he's like, this like, takes like an afternoon. <laughs> That's he's like, I don't understand why it's taking you so long. Like, this book took me like two days to do, right? Like, you know, and, and that was with, I had to draw all the pictures and yours doesn't even have any pictures. <laughs> Great point. Um, Great point. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I think that, um, that he gets the, the idea of it. I think this sort of idea of, um, like a writing being a process that involves a lot of editing and a lot of that, you know, that's still, he's working on that. Yeah, that's fair. He's seven. I guess he's yeah, got I was some like, time. That, that, I was like, that's a reasonable place to be <laughs> yeah. for age seven. What is, what is he like reading? What's he into? He, um, and like, so what are you re- into that he likes reading? Oh, that I'm, yeah. yeah. So he, he's reading, um, he's reading on his own pretty well, but when it's a long book, he likes to read it together. Mm-hmm. So we have been reading chapter books together. We worked our way through, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the BFG by Roald Dahl. Yeah. Um, we worked our way through this fantastic series of books called, uh, Dory Phantasmagory by a woman called Abby Hamlin. They're pretty recent. But they just follow the adventures of this six-year-old who has um, this crazy imagination and all the kind of weird things that she does. Um, And we've just started getting into Harry Potter. So we're working our way through Harry Potter book number one. And he's been pretty into it so far, which I'm really excited to, like, finally get to be sharing some of those things with him. What's what's next for you? Um, I... I have just gotten back, and so I'm kind of wrestling with that question myself. Um, I have two ideas that are sort of hazily starting to come into focus, and so I'm in that stage right now where I get to read a bunch of new things and sort of see what you know sparks a new idea. I get to go down a lot of internet rabbit holes. Mm. Um, but right now, I haven't started on anything yet, so I'm kind of in this, uh, I guess it's like a fallow period, but I'm I'm kind of itchy to get back to work on something because I'm... I'm a much nicer person when I'm writing something, honestly. <laughs> um, have you read anything especially good yourself lately? Oh, um, well, I've just started reading a book called The Talented Ribkins by Lady Hubbard. Um, I'm not very far into it yet, but it's it's really fun so far. Um, it follows this, um, this family, uh, it's an African-American family, and they all they're in Florida and each of the members has kind of a superpower, but it's kind of a quirky superpower. So one of them, um, like one of them can like climb up any wall and like one of them can like make maps of places that he's never been to. And one of them can catch anything that's thrown at her. And they, um, they start to realize that they are part of this, um, extended family that actually was, um, basically sort of fighting for civil rights uh, oh. during the 1960s. And so it's kind of a superhero uh, story. And it's also kind of a story about um, civil rights yeah. and about black history. And it, it sounds like a weird combination, but it works really well. Like it's very, it's very quirky. And so far it's very fun. That's awesome. Um, so that's, that's what I've just picked that up now, like in the past two days. That sounds 
Yeah, I want to read that. Can't wait for the movie version. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> she's also, I think the author is going to be, or maybe has just been on uh, Late Night with Seth Meyers also. And oh. I was like, this is going to be great. Like, it's going to be such a fun book to talk about. Oh, Love. Awesome. Um, hey, thanks so much for coming on. You were fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I hope you get some rest now. <laughs> that's the plan. I'm going to read. I have so many books that I want to read. And that's like the perfect way to kind of re-enter into normal life. Totally. Um, love that. Um, you have been listening to a few things. Um, we are here every Monday. You can find us on, where can you get us, Claire? You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast FM. I love that Overcast FM. Real into it. Yeah, um, wherever you find, wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to advertise with us, email us at advertising at ofakind.com. If you want to email us with topics we should talk about, email us at a few things at ofakind.com. That's the show. Bye. So many of you guys write in and ask about our theme song. It is called Butterfield East, and it is composed and performed by the Soulful Saints. You can check them out over at DallaRecords.com. That was a HeadGum Podcast.